For the last time, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. We come to the epilogue of that most depressing book, uh, verses 9 through 14. That's what we'll look at this evening. The last time we hear from the preacher. Verses 9 through 14, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought, sought out and sent order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, again, we are thankful that you are our good shepherd, and we're thankful that you guide us. Thank you that you feed us. Thank you that you protect us. And thank you that Christ himself is that most blessed good shepherd. And so we pray again, O oh God, that we would fear you by faith. And we pray, O oh God, that we would seek to keep your commandments by faith, for this is our all, to glorify you in this way. And whatever comes our way that is difficult for us to comprehend, whatever frowning providence we have to endure, O oh God, help us to fear you and keep your commandments. Thank you, O oh God, that you give us this task. You give us this command on how we ought to live despite all that we may endure in this world. And thank you, O God, that all that we endure, you give us wisdom in how to navigate it all. And we're also thankful, O God, that one day the miseries that we still suffer in this world shall come to a complete end, whether we die or whether Christ comes back. Thank you for this hope. Thank you for this promise that awaits your people, that we certainly shall be restful by those still waters. We shall be by those green pastures forever in Emmanuel's land. So we pray, O oh God, you give us rest as you guide us to that land. Give us strength as you lead us, even through the valley of the shadow of death. And so we ask, O oh God, you'd give your saints strength tonight. Be pleased to save sinners this night. And we pray in all things, O oh God, that you'd be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, you know what they say, all good things must come to an end. And perhaps sometimes that's a good thing because this book has been very depressing. This book has been filled with enigma, filled with absurdity, filled with so much sadness that I'm depressed that we're ending. I'm sad to see it go. I'm sad to say goodbye to the preacher because he has validated all the sorrow and sadness that we endure in this world. Sometimes we need someone just to tell us the world is sinful. The world is inconsistent. The world is unfair. And that's exactly what the preacher does for us as we come to end our time with him. And even though the end of our time with the preacher is positive, there are still some things that are perplexing as we come to this end. Surprise, surprise. Tension, confusion, and absurdity have been scattered throughout this book, and the book has taught us that we can't always make sense of tension, and that tension is going to still remain, but he then asks, he answers the question, how then shall we live in a world filled with tension? Wisdom is still good, and we must fear God. We're not going to understand everything that happens in this world, but wisdom is still something to be pursued, even though sometimes the wise shall die faster than the wicked wisdom doesn't always bring riches wisdom doesn't always bring long life but wisdom still should be something that is pursued and as we pursue wisdom we must fear god above all things and the two go hand in hand wisdom and the fear of god even in a world filled with inconsistency and as you know the book itself is all about that wrestling with inconsistency it goes with Proverbs. Proverbs is a little more traditional wisdom. That is, if you do what is right, you'll receive good things. You do what is bad, you'll receive bad things. Well, thankfully, Ecclesiastes and Job give us some nuance. There's going to be absurdity that we have to deal with in this world. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. And he comes again to this perhaps positive ending of the book and how we ought to live in light of the motto of the book. Enigma of enigmas, all is enigma. How then shall we live? What profit is there for man under 
the Son. Well, death is coming, which we saw last time. And certainly we ought to rejoice as the book moved towards the end of the body of the book. He gave two final commands, rejoice in the good things and remember you're going to die. That's good wisdom the preacher gives to us. God gives good things. You're going to pass away. Life is short. Enjoy, not sin, but enjoy the good things. But also remember you're going to pass and consider where you will be when you pass away. Well, certainly maybe death isn't involved here, but at the end of the epilogue here, but there still certainly are some good exhortations for us to glean from the preacher as we say goodbye. The epilogue certainly is, as it clearly highlights, a conclusion of the book, but also gives us meaning, meaning for future readers, meaning for the future, how we ought to take the things we learn and continue to apply them as the people of God. Now, again, the book is ending is positive, but there's still some things that are confusing. Wisdom is still going to be wearying as we seek it. Wisdom is still something that is hard to find. Wisdom is still something that is difficult to pursue. And that's the problem. How shall we seek wisdom in a sin-filled world still? Foolishness abounds in this world. Wisdom can only bring grief. The pursuit of wisdom can only bring sorrow. Wisdom is so very rare, but you still must pursue it anyway. Pursue wisdom regardless of how hard it is to find. We must pursue wisdom regardless of how difficult it is to notice in this world and throughout the book, throughout all the enigmas that we saw, he still always came back to, but still pursue wisdom. And his wisdom is on display for us again in these final verses. It is wearying, but it still must be taught. And the final tidbit and nugget of wisdom that he gives us is the conclusion in verses 13 and 14. In the epilogue, we hear the conclusion of his quest. After all I've learned, here's what it boils down to. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's it. That's man's all. That's what we must do in a world that we cannot control. Fear God and keep his commandments. And we'll look at this idea under two headings this evening. We'll first of all see the preacher's task in verses 9 through 11, still all centered around the preacher and his quest and what he has done for us and the final conclusion of the matter. So the preacher's task, verses 9 and 11, and then the preacher's conclusion, verses 12 through 14. So the preacher's task, verses 9 through 11, and then secondly, the preacher's conclusion, verses 12 through 14. Let's first look at the preacher's task in verses 9 through 11, and specifically the task proper in verses 9 and 10. Notice, and moreover, because the preacher was wise. Remember the word preacher does not come up a lot in the book, but we know that he is the one who is writing it, whether it's in the first person throughout the body or whether it's in the third person throughout the prologue and the epilogue. It is the same author, I do believe. And as I highlight way back when we started the book, commentators are divided on who the author is there's the new boys who say it's not solomon there's the old boys who say it's solomon i'm with the old boys i think it is solomon the wisest man of all has some wisdom for us the wisest man of all if he struggles with what he observes in this world that gives us some comfort doesn't it if the one who, who has been given the greatest amount of wisdom by God and he still sees perplexity, shouldn't that give us some encouragement that there is perplexity and absurdity in the world? And Solomon was the son of David. The preacher is the son of David. Solomon, I think in 1 Kings eleven forty one, he wrote more wisdom according to the end of his life in 1 Kings 11. He gathers people in 1 Kings 8. He writes many other Proverbs. He is the one who's been given that gift of wisdom in 1 Kings 3. So I do believe it is Solomon. And notice the way the, 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 the syntax, um, the way it is structured. Because the preacher was wise, so uh, therefore he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he was the wisest man, but he didn't just keep it to himself. He wants to impart it to others. He wants to gather people around and preach to them to tell them and encourage them on how they ought to live in this world filled with enigma. 
It's almost as if throughout the book, he's talking to his younger self. He has tried pleasure, vanity. He has seen all these things. Don't do it. Young person, do as I say, not as I did, is kind of what he is saying throughout the book. Don't go into folly. Don't go into madness. Pursue wisdom now. And in fact, the emphasis in Ecclesiastes 12, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Rejoice, O man, 11.9, in your youth. Let your heart chew you in the days of your youth. And I highlighted then, I think in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 11, he's not talking about pursue sin, but pursue righteousness now. If you're young, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ now. Look to him now and pursue righteousness now. Pursue the right way of living now. Why does he say that? The older we get, we get more entrenched in our ways. And it's good to be molded when one is young. Now, again, if one grows older, it's true that God works and changes, but sometimes it can be a lot harder because of that entrenchment. And so it is good to learn early. It's good to learn quickly. It's good to learn the right way in which we ought to live. And Solomon is the one who imparts that wisdom. And what he is saying as the wisest man there ever was, he wants them to know true knowledge. He wants to teach the people. I still think he is teaching it to the covenant people. Even though he's pursuing and observing how the world functions, he's not just doing it without the God of Israel in his forefront. He's not just doing it autonomously. He is pursuing and observing the world around him with God that he might fear God and then teach the people of God how they ought to live. Even though I think it is written by Solomon and there's much application for Israel as they were still a body politic, there is still much application for Israel in exile, how they ought to live. And exile would have been very perplexing for the people of God. What of David's promises? What of our identity? How ought we to live in a place that is not our home? Well, he helps them a little bit. He tells them the world's filled with sin and enigma. That's why Israel did terrible things. The world's filled with sin and enigma. That's why pagans do terrible things. And so it validates the inconsistency and unfairness of the world that we observe. And even though there is enigma, even though wisdom is hard, he's still saying it's better to know the right path. It's still better to know the right path to walk It's better to know where our meaning comes from, namely God himself. Even though there are crooked paths that we might have to walk, we need God's grace to give us wisdom and how to walk those paths. And and we're going to highlight that or see that more when we get to verse 10. But sometimes God leads us down a crooked path, the path we didn't expect, the path that is filled with enigma, the path that is filled with difficulty, the path that is filled with sorrow. How then we ought to live? Navigate that path with wisdom. Navigate the valley of the shadow of death with righteousness. Navigate and discern the right approach we ought to take. And wisdom really is taking the commandments of God and applying them in various situations, discerning the right way to go. And hopefully whatever God commands us, we do what he says over and against what the world says. And thankfully, God is the one who helps us. God is the one who is gracious for us, uh, towards us. And God does give much wisdom. I mean, in James, he said, when you face trials of various kinds and you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll help you. Ask God and he gives to all without reproach. Remember, James is that New Testament book of wisdom, how we ought to navigate the trials that we face in this world. Well, the preacher here is saying, uh, what he is saying is, I've learned it. I am teaching it that the people might know it. Yes, he still taught the people knowledge, even though he was the wisest man of all. He gathers them around, which is the meaning of the book, right? Kohelet is the Hebrew word for preacher, and kahal means to gather. He is the one who gathers around like a church in a lot of ways, gathers around and preaches to them that they might learn. And so at the end here, he's saying, gather, come one, come all. Here's the conclusion of everything I saw under the sun. And so he's teaching it. 
He had pondered it, noticed the basis for his teaching is his years in his quest. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. It's almost as if he was willing to endure vanity so that others may learn. I mean, at the beginning of the book, it says he sought wisdom and found grief. And the reason is in his quest, as he seeks to determine the right path, he's going to see a lot of bad in that path. Why is he going to see a lot of bad in the path is because there's a lot of sinfulness in this world. He sought wisdom, but only found grief. And he then highlights a lot, talks a lot about death. What happens to the fool happens to the wise. So what then, how then ought we to live? Wisdom can only bring grief, but wisdom still must be pursued. And he pondered, he listened, he thought carefully, and he set out in order many proverbs. What's interesting, that's the same word for the book of Proverbs. And even though sometimes Ecclesiastes and Proverbs uh, do not square together, a lot of the times they do. That's why we have to read Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job all together. We must understand traditional wisdom, which is still good, fearing God and pursuing his ways, but understand there's going to be nuance. We might fear God and keep his ways, but there might be sadness we have to endure still. We might fear God and keep his ways, but there might be sorrow we still have to endure. And so the right path is always to do what God has said, regardless of what circumstance may come our way. So reading them all together is very beneficial. And Ecclesiastes gives us that nuance. Job teaches us glad consecration to whatever circumstance comes our way. Remember, Job is never known or never told why those calamities happen to him throughout the problem throughout ecclesiastes how often has he said we cannot find out the work of god from the beginning to the end and even though the path might be crooked the right path is always to do what god has said and what's interesting is that word to set out in order in verse 9 is used in two other places in the book in 7 4 and 7 13 consider the work of god for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. And so what he's answering here at the end is, if you have a day of adversity, do what is right. If you have a day, if you have a day of prosperity, do what is right. If you have a day of riches, do what is right. If you have a day of nothing, do what is right. Then the word is also used in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 15 right at the beginning. This is where his grief comes from. He sought to determine what is man's task under the sun. What is crooked in verse 15 cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. There's kind of a despair at the beginning there. What then shall we do if there's all this sadness and sorrow? Well, then here is what we ought to do. Do what the preacher says, and do what God has said, because he has laid out many pithy Remember, uh, memorable statements for how one ought to live. And the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job help us navigate the crooked world in which we live in, don't they? How we ought to live, how we ought to do what is right, how we ought to fear God and keep his commandments. But I'm get a, getting ahead of the preacher. And so we also see how he writes true words for us. He doesn't just say them one of the ways in which he teaches is he preaches but he also writes them down for us in verse 10 we see his form and content he is the master of both the preacher sought to find acceptable words words of uh, uh and what was written was upright words of truth he just lays down what the truth is what he sees and what is true in light of what God has said. And again, seeking has been important throughout this book. In 725 through 29, he applied his heart to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things. He wishes to know what is the right way, but he also wishes to know the opposite way as well, that we might know what the right way is in contrast with that opposite way. Verse 25 of 7, to know the wickedness of folly and even of foolish 
Yes. What is the right way? Then he goes on to talk about how ensnaring women are, but then he goes on to talk about how rare wisdom really is. Or in 8, 16 and 17, he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep or night. Then I saw all the work of God that man can find out, uh, man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. And throughout the book, that language is scattered. I have sought. I sought to know these things. I sought to learn these things. He has sought these words, and he has written down the truth for us in what he says. Again, wisdom is still beneficial in light of the perplexities of life. Wisdom does not take away the absurdity or the unfairness, but it helps us in the midst of that absurdity. Henry says, that which he wrote for our instruction is of unquestionable certainty. There's one thing you can be certain, you can be certain you're uncertain about how the world operates and what we may rely upon. That which was written was upright and sincere, according to the real sentiments of the penman, even words of truth, the exact representation of the thing as it is. That is, he saw that the, the wicked uh, prosper and the righteous die. It happens and comes upon them. That is absolutely true in a fallen world. We don't always, uh, ex- uh, we, we ought to expect that because of what the preacher has said, but not everyone expected that very thing, but it is true. He's on to say, those are sure not to miss their way who are guided by these words. What good will acceptable words do us if they are not, be not upright in words of truth? Most are for smooth things that flatter them rather than the right things that direct them. But to those that understand themselves in their own interest, words of truth will always be acceptable and good. The fool likes the sound of his own voice. The fool does not like the sound of rebuke, but the wise man hears rebuke that we might know that the wise man might know the right way to go, the right direction in this world. Truth is hard but truth is important. That's the preacher's task in verses 9 and 10, still under that first point. And then in verse 11, he talks about still the benefits of wise words. And notice what he says. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails. Goads were used by shepherds to move animals along the route. Perhaps they're a little sharp just to, just to get them going. Uh, the word is only used here and in 1 Samuel 13 to refer to weapons that they were going to use against the Philistines. So it was meant to just to get them going, to just make sure they're going along that right path. Sometimes we need wise words to goad us along. But we also need those words to be driven in like a nail. That is, they need to be embedded in our hearts. Don't just hear them. Don't just feel that sting, but make sure it's driven into you that you understand it. That those the words of the wise and the collection of masters are embedded into one's heart. It doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. Sometimes it takes us a while to learn certain things and God goads us and keeps goading us. And then sometimes he does drive it home. And sometimes it's in the hard situations of life that he really drives it home for us, doesn't he? And thankfully, he's still very gracious to us as he drives the nail home. But they are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails, the collections of masters, the collections of wise men, the collections that come. And they are encouraging when we hear those wise words. And we've seen a lot of wise words throughout the book that's very relevant uh, for today and relevant for any time period. I mean, Ecclesiastes 7, don't be overly offended. I mean, isn't that just a wonderful thing to say? Don't take everything to heart. Why don't you take everything to heart? Because you probably say things to other people about other people when they're not watching either. Everybody says something about somebody else when nobody's watching. So just deal with it. It's okay. Like we need to be less offended in life. We need to have thicker skin in life. There's been a lot of idioms in this book. I'm like, that's awesome. It's in the Bible that says certain things. Yeah. Don't be a snowflake and don't be overly 
offend it. Ecclesiastes 4, popularity is going to pass. Deal with it. You're not going to be as popular as you were in high school when you grow older, right? Some of us weren't that popular in high school. Sometimes we peak at another time and that's okay. And then we go downhill, but that's part of life. We go downhill from there and just deal with it. And that's perfectly okay. Or my fa- one of my favorites, it is what it is. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves. I mean, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north and the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. I mean, the whole thing in that book, a whole, a whole point of that section was if you, if money is the answer to wisdom or money is the answer to folly, you should pursue money. And that's perfectly okay. Engage in enterprise. That's perfectly fine. But if calamity comes, it is what it is. I mean, that's the point, right? You can invest, but if the stock market crashes, well, it is what it is. I'm sorry if you have money in the stocks and it's crashed, but it is what it is. The tree falls to the south or the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. And then we shouldn't be overly fearful about trying to plus, you know, um, time certain things. Verse 4 of 11, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So what then ought we to do? Be diligent. Pursue God. Do what is right. Be diligent in the life that God has given you day by day because you cannot find out the work of God from the beginning to the end. There's been a lot of blessed nails driven in, or hopefully they've been driven in by the preacher in this book. They are beneficial for us. But ultimately, notice where they come from. Given by one shepherd. God gives preachers to teach us, but they come from God himself, who is the shepherd. That's interesting, isn't it? Throughout the book, we've seen the word God, and we do everything in light of our God. But it doesn't come till Ecclesiastes 12, where we see the identity of our God, the creator. Remember the creator in the days of your youth. But then here at the end, he is our shepherd the shepherd who goads, the shepherd who guides, and the shepherd who drives these nails home. I mean, this does go with Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fearing him, trusting him, believing upon him as the one who is our creator, but also as the one who is our redeemer. And perhaps there's a comforting connection with him being the creator in 12, or at the beginning of, uh, in 12, 1, and him being the shepherd here in 12, 11. Kidner says the God afar off, whose writ runs everywhere, is equally the God at hand, who knows and can be known, who speaks to us with, us with man's voice, and yet with finality. The creator of all things is the shepherd of his people. He is the shepherd of his sheep who guides us. He is the God who is transcendent, but he is the God who is imminent with his people. And think about it. The God who created all things for a specific end, shouldn't he be the one who knows the proper end of things? And if he knows the proper end of things and what he created them for, should we not then trust in him and trust in what he has said and follow his ways? For as Solomon says in Proverbs, the way of the sinner is hard isn't it? Sin never leads to good things. Sin never leads to blessing. Sin never leads. It only leads to hardship. Thankfully, our sins are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ and adds God's people. We ought then to pursue the things of God in a right way. Thankfully, forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in a fallen world, he gives us wisdom as the shepherd and how we ought to live. That's why we sang Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He is a blessed and gracious good shepherd. And Christ himself is called the good shepherd. Not one of his sheep shall be snatched from his hands. I think about what a shepherd does. He guides. What does God do with his word? He guides. A shepherd feeds. What does God do with his word? He feeds. And a shepherd protects. 
What does God do with his word? He protects. And we must cling to that Christ, cling to our Christ and cling to his word where God guides us, feeds us, and protects us. And all the old boys applied a lot of what we see here in verses 9 through 14 with pastors who preach and are given and not to protect and care for the flock. Uh, certainly that could be there. I didn't quite make that jump, but certainly that application very much probably could be there. Uh, God has the true shepherd who is given under shepherds to care for his people that they may be protected along the way. And so all that he's trying to say here is there's benefit in God's wisdom. And what we could say for a modern application is there's benefit in God's word. I mean, hopefully you all agree with that. That's probably why you're all here. Hopefully you, you see the importance of clinging to the word of God and being fed and nourished by it. Even in a fallen world, wisdom is still a blessing. Even in a fallen world, God's word is still important. And that's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of the Bible, the wisdom of James, the wisdom of Colossians, clinging to what God has said. And there's been a lot of comforting things when it comes to wisdom in Ecclesiastes. We're all going to die. That's encouraging. Wisdom of time, wisdom of enjoyment, the wisdom of a close friend. The wisdom of knowing popularity passes, the wisdom of knowing money can't buy happiness, the wisdom that knowing God who gives good things and he gives the ability to enjoy those good things. There is wisdom in sorrow. Ecclesiastes 7, wisdom in obedience, wisdom in not being easily offended, wisdom has value, Ecclesiastes 10, and just wisdom knowing you will die. That's a lot of what we've seen already in this book, and it's probably a good thing for us eventually to go. I'll probably come back to the preacher a lot as I go through life, but there's been a lot of blessed wisdom that he's given to us. Wisdom is beneficial, even in a world filled with vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So that's the preacher's task. Let's then look, secondly, at the preacher's conclusion, verses 12 through 14. I'm always sad to say goodbye to our friends. Whenever we finish a book, say goodbye to Paul, though we usually come back to Paul because he's got other books. We'll come back to the, the preacher again one time with Proverbs, probably. Probably never Song of Solomon. Pastor Butler said, I'm never preaching Saul of Solomon. So I'll probably join him with that. But uh, we will come back to Solomon at some point. Uh, but I'm sad to see him go. So I'll, I'll try to stretch this last point as long as possible. Uh, but just kidding. Verses 12 through 14. Notice there's still an enigma. Wisdom is wearying. Verse 12, and further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. A couple sermons ago, I said, you should just read what I tell you to read. Well, that's right here in Ecclesiastes. Just read what I say, because there's so many things in this world that you need to pick the best books to read. And I know I said you should read what I say, but if you read within the ballpark, that's fine too. My point is just read good books when you only have so much time. Well, there it is in Ecclesiastes 12, 12. And they look, further my son, similar to how Solomon speaks in Proverbs, my son, pay attention to what I have to say. There are many books, and there is no end. There is a lot of information out there. There's a lot of information out there now. I mean, we have more information at our fingertips than what all the generations behind or before us combined. Yet somehow we're not as smart as them. I'm sorry to say it like that. Maybe we are. I don't know. But it seems we're not as smart as they were when it comes to certain things, especially the church. We don't know as much as they seem to have known or the way they thought. I'm you're all smart. I love you all. But you know what? You know what I'm saying? We just have so much at our fingertips, yet we don't use it as much as we should. And maybe where we don't know as much is because it's so daunting. There it all is. Wow. What, what do I read? I, I have no, there's just so much there. And perhaps for the people of God, if they were, uh, when they are in exile, there's all these other things that they're exposed to. There's this idea. There's that idea. There's th no, he's saying there's, it is wearisome. There's many books. There is no end. And much study is wearisome to the flesh. Study is tiring. Reading is tiring. Doing a job is tiring. Caring for family is tiring. Listening is tiring. So we only have so much time. 
right? That's the perplexity, isn't it? It is wearisome for us. So it's best to focus on the things we have time to focus. It's best to prioritize the things we ought to. And for the people of God, when they were in exile or even before exile, it was the Torah, Deuteronomy specifically, or primarily, and it was wisdom, what God has said. That's what they had to, or should have focused on. Instead, they wanted to do what all the other nations did. Look what happened with that one. Or even in exile, they need to have focused on primarily the things of God. Now, if someone is able to be strong in the those things, they can then branch out. Remember, Daniel had all the wisdom and knowledge and study of Babylon. He was on another level that way. But not everybody's Daniel, right? So it's if we only have so much time... We ought to follow the preacher's advice. Son, be admonished by these. There's so many things to read, and much study is very wearisome. It is hard and difficult. Therefore, what then shall we do? Verse 13. Finally, the conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The whole book is driving to this very point. All of the perplexity all of the vanity that we had to deal with, all of the problems, all of the talks of dying, it's all driving to this point. What then shall we do? How then shall we live in this world? Fear God, keep his commandments. That's it. You want how to navigate this world? Fear God, keep his commandments. You cannot find out what God is going to do tomorrow. You cannot find out the work from the beginning to the end. So what must you do today? Fear God, keep his commandments. What do you do tomorrow if God allows you to wake up? Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the conclusion of the whole matter. Bartholomew says this is pastorally significant. For Ecclesiastes, like Job, holds out hope for those struggling in the mid, amid the mysteries of what God is up to in their life lives a lot of people are wondering why am i going through this well i don't know but fear god and keep his commandments and thus the christian life job and ecclesiastes also give us clues as how to live these in these moments he will keep you fast right and when you hear evil tidings he will keep you strong. Isn't that a paraphrase of Psalm 112? That's why we read that at the outset. Blessed is the man who fears God and who delights in his commandments. Now, when it comes to fearing God, certainly the old covenant people were called to fear God in Deuteronomy 6. And that really was in contrast with the other gods. Fear not as though there were other gods, but fear and trust in your God the one who is above all. Kidner says the fear of God is a call that puts us in our place and all their fears, hopes, and admirations in their place. There's other things that we can fear in this life, right? Like absurd things that happen to us, losing all our money, bad relationships, death, all those things can be fearful. But what's he saying? Fear God above all of those things. And in a lot of ways, he's saying, fear God by faith. That is, trust in him above all. Trust in his promises above all. Fear him above everything else in this world. We've already seen this a little bit in the book. In Ecclesiastes 5, he says, when you go into God's house, don't be rash with your mouth. Fear him with few words. Recognize who he is as you enter into his house, and then fear God with faithful vows. If you make a vow, make sure you pay it to God. We talked about that a long time ago, but at the end, in verse 7, for in the multitude of dreams, in many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. Fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments. And Bridges does apply, apply it in this faith-type aspect. If we are to fear God, we need the circumcision of the heart, do we not? Israel did not fear God. God says to the, uh, the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 10, 
circumcised your hearts. They can't do that. Deuteronomy 30 prophesies about God who circumcises hearts. And as we saw this morning, God is the one who gives us the circumcision made without hands. Bridges says it is the work of the spirit in the heart of the regenerate. It is the covenant promise securing the faithfulness of the children of God. Brethren, what must we do? And what is the privilege and blessing for the people of God? We can fear and trust him. He is the potentate of time. He has given us a purpose for our, there's a purpose for everything under the sun. He makes everything beautiful in its time. We're not always going to know the reasons why, but we can fear him and trust in him. It is a filial fear, a loving fear, not a servile fear, a sin enslaving fear, but a fear of who God is and fearing him based on what he has done. And we can fear him by faith. So what ought we to do, brethren? We ought to fear our God. And in, in, what's interesting is in Acts chapter 9, in our reading, it's always nice to get illustrations right before the sermon, even in the New Testament readings. But what happens after it says Paul had to flee because they were going to kill him? The church grew. There was peace. They were edified. And they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord above their persecutors. They had peace, even in the midst of that persecution. They feared God above all things, even though there was the threat of persecution on the church. So fear God. But then also keep his commandments. Certainly the idea of commandments would have been very clear to the old covenant people. The word commandments is only used here in this book. And again, it's not just this pursuit by the preacher without some sort of covenantal background. That is certainly in view as he engages in his quest. And certainly wisdom is the right use of commandments. Folly is sin. Folly is sinning. Folly is doing what goes against God's commandments and even other places in the wisdom literature fearing the lord is wisdom shunning evil is understanding but as we shun evil how do we shun evil by keeping god's commandments now for the people of god for the new covenant church thankfully christ has kept the commandments for us he has kept them in perfection and as he has died for us and as he we've been buried and raised with him then we ought to not let sin reign in our body. And how do we not let sin reign in our body? By keeping his commandments, by the power of the spirit. You want to know what God's plan for your life is? Honor him, love others. I mean, don't take the Lord, uh, have no other gods before you. Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. To honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. We live in a world where everybody's asking, what is God's plan for my life? I don't know what the unfolding plan of your life is going to be, what's going to happen in the future, but I know that this is your is God's will for your life. Fear him and keep his commandments. We know our purpose. He says, for this is man's all. We live in a world where nobody knows what the meaning of life is or what one's purpose is. I don't care if you work at McDonald's or you're the CEO of McDonald's. I don't care if you're the one pouring the coffee or the one paying everybody. You must fear God and keep his commandments and both have purpose. Isn't that comforting for us, whatever job we do, that we know our purpose in this world? It's to honor and glorify God in whatever we do. And we thankfully can glorify him through faith. What's interesting too is man was supposed to worship God and glorify God. Man worships himself and does not glorify God and glorifies himself. But the redeemed by the power of Christ seek and can glorify him. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the meaning of life. And then notice in verse 14, this is man's all as one of the motivations for how we ought to honor God. And then the second motivation is judgment, verse 14. 
For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. His point is judgment is coming. The, the preacher has spoken about final judgment already. In 11.9, he spoke about that. God will bring everything into judgment. In Ecclesiastes 3, it was kind of a comfort, actually. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. That is, under the sun, there is injustice. But thankfully, one day, God will bring everything into judgment. I said in my heart, verse 17 of 3, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and every work. That is, when the righteous are persecuted by the wicked, God will bring everything into judgment. And later on in four, flowing out of what he said in three, he says, look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. Vanity of vanities. People might go through oppression. God's people might be persecuted in this world and never be released from that persecution until they die or Christ comes back. I'm sorry, but that's reality. And we have to understand that that could be something that perhaps we go through. But thankfully, Christ shall come again. Though we die, we shall be with him forever. And Christ will make his enemies his footstool. The judgment to come is an encouragement for the people of God and ought to be a terrifying thing for those not in Christ. And as we saw last time, death itself is a type of final judgment. When one of us dies individually, it is a type of judgment. How eerie death was, we saw with that poem. I know there's differing views on 12, 1 through 8, but he's talking about how fearful death is. The removal of a city, how everything's depopulated, how one's desire leaves how the sun and the moon are darkened, even when one dies, but the rest of the world continues on. That is a type of judgment. But one day there shall be an actual final judgment when God shall bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. All the secret things that one thinks and one says shall be brought into judgment, whether good or whether evil. And the reason it ends on this note, the book ends with the end of history, is to kill complacency, to cause people to stop and ponder and consider. That's why it ends in this way. Typical of the preacher, end on an enigma. Not really. I mean, there's a certainty that final judgment is coming, but he just kind of ends on this note. Boom, judgment is coming. Kidner says it kills complacency to know nothing goes unnoticed and unassessed. Not even the things that we disguise ourselves. The purpose of this is to elicit a response for people to ponder and consider what shall happen when they die. For people to ponder and consider what shall happen when Christ comes back and judges the world in righteousness. Are you going to be in him and therefore not guilty because of what he has done by believing upon him? Or are you going to die in your sins and be guilty for all the sins you have committed? That's what he's trying to elicit here for us. Jesus, the just judge, shall come and judge the world, where all things that have been hidden shall be exposed. Now, brethren, as I've tried to highlight I remember one of my professors highlighted this. In 2 Thessalonians, there's an order for that final day. Resurrection first. Resurrection, judgment, new heavens, and new earth. What does that mean? We go to the final judgment with our uh, self-same bodies conformed to Christ's body. And when we stand before God on that final day, you know what he's going to say? Not guilty. And why is he going to say not guilty for all the sins you committed? Why is he going to say not guilty for all the secret things and all the secret laws you violated in your minds? Why is he going to say not guilty? Because Christ kept all of the, all the commandments and Christ died for all of our trespasses in him. There is life in him. There is hope 
in him, we do not need to fear death, and we do not need to fear that final judgment. Brethren, our task is clear. Fear God, keep his commandments. Everything else will only bring despair. The only comfort in life that is described in this world filled of vanity, filled and called vanity of vanities, is Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. He is our only hope. And thankfully, he is our good shepherd. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher, find life in Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you again for teaching us so many good things and for validating the inconsistency that we deal with in this fallen world. Thank you, O God, for preparing our hearts for all of those things that we have to deal with. But also we're thankful, O God, you give us wisdom and how to navigate them. Help us to be humble. Help us to submit. Help us to trust in you, O God, who is the potentate of time. Help us to trust in your promises and trust in your providences, O God, that you do all things right and you make everything beautiful uh, in its time. And help us, O God, even as we navigate various trials and difficulties, may we fear you. May we fear you. May we trust you. And may we, by your spirit and by your power, seek to honor you by keeping your commandments. Please again, O God, forgive us for all the times that we fail, but thank you that Christ in him There is forgiveness for all of our sins, word, thought, and deed, for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He has forgiven us of all our trespasses. He has taken away the requirements that we owe to you, and thank you, O God, that they are nailed to that cross. So we pray, O God, you give your people comfort and encouragement tonight. Help us to pursue wisdom but help us to pursue wisdom with a nuanced understanding of the fallen world in which we live. But we're thankful, O God, that this world shall pass. This world is not our home, and we long for all things to be made right when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead and to bring in the new heavens and new earth. If there are any here today who do not know you, O God, we pray that you would save their souls. Cause them to ponder and consider life after death. May you save their souls this night. And we pray, O God, that you'd strengthen your saints. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.